you know, I got asked a little while ago, would I come and give a talk on choosing a career path? And I said, no, I am the worst example in the world of that. <laughs> I've had zero career aspirations. I never had a plan. I'm the world's worst example of planning all of this out. And, you know, I very easily could have been a plumber. If you're a hip-hop aficionado like me, you'll remember the mid-90s as just an amazing time for hip-hop. One of the coolest things was that in the mid-90s, all the great rappers were putting out double discs. Biggie had Ready to Die, Tupac had All Eyes on Me, Wu-Tang had Wu-Tang Forever. Now you're probably wondering what this has to do with today's podcast. Well, here's the thing. When these rappers were putting out these albums, it wasn't just two albums of fluff. It was two albums of no-skip, non-stop, amazing hip-hop. And so that's what I've tried to do here for you today. Dr. Stuart McGill has been on my show two times now. Each time has been an amazing, resource-rich episode, and I wanted to do that and bring it together because... Well, I could have him on again, and I'm looking to get him back on again. One of the things that I hate about the internet is that when you put out a piece of great content, it's maybe hot for a day, a week, maybe even a month if it's really, really good, but then it slips away into the ether and you never hear from it again. Well, look, Dr. Stuart McGill has been one of the most impactful people in my life, in my career as a personal trainer, as a strength coach, and I want you to hear his message. I remember back in, I think it was 2001, I had to write a core training research paper for my master's program. This was kind of a prelude to my thesis. They want to start getting you comfortable finding research, reading research, taking it, interpreting it, making it your own. And I came across this, this Stuart McGill guy. I'm like, ah, okay, this is, he's a name on a paper. But it wasn't until I moved to Fort Wayne in 2002, 2003, and I'm dealing with lower back pain patients every single day. Remember, I'm in the back of a chiropractic clinic. I'm working with people that legitimately all day, every day have back pain, discs, um, you know, ridiculous issues, um, just your average, you know, one-sided lower back pain. I saw a whole bunch of different presentations, and luckily... That whole Stu McGill guy that I found in my master's program, now he's got books on this stuff. And in fact, he wrote two amazing books. If you haven't checked out Low Back Disorders and Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance, they are foundational texts that I think every trainer, every coach should have in their library. So, you know, I'm so excited to bring this show back to you, even though it's kind of a replay. We're bringing these two episodes together. The information in here is so invaluable, and I can't say enough good things about Stu. Luckily, he lets me call him Stu because <laughs> we've gotten to hang out enough times. We've had a couple beers together. This guy deepened my love for biomechanics and understanding the human body, and there's so many great moments across these two shows. We talk about his assessment process and how he looks at movement, how he looks at the spine. We talk about how that assessment process drives his programming because no two programs are alike. No two bodies are alike. And then we kind of bring it all together and he talks about some of the biggest differences or the major differences you're going to see. So if you work in a gin pop fat loss setting, your approach, the core exercise you may choose, uh, the strategies that you may use with your 
your clients is going to be different than if you're working with even lower level and specifically higher level elite athletes. So again, my friend, so excited to bring this show back to the daylight. So many great moments. And man, I can't say enough. Dr. McGill is the best when it comes to spinal biomechanics. And if you want to learn more about core training and keeping lower backs healthy, this is the episode for you. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome double episode with Dr. Stuart McGill. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you'll join us when the next complete coach certification launches. Dr. McGill, thank you so much for coming on the show here today. I really appreciate it. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, good evening, first of all, Mike. Well, I'm a professor at the University of Waterloo of spine biomechanics, at least that's the official title. I've been doing that for 32 years and next week will be my last week. That's amazing. (laughs) But I will be retiring just from teaching at the university and then I'll still see patients and do a bit of consulting as I teach the odd clinical course, but that's what I do. Very cool. Very cool. And you know, as long as we've known each other, I'm not sure I've ever heard what got you into the world of physical preparation and, you know, really your work with backs. Well, that can be a long story or a short story, so I'll go for something a little bit in the middle. I was in in high school, never university material. I was a terrible high school student. And in fact, I was going to be a plumber. But, uh, you know, talking to the football coach and whatnot, I stayed and actually went to university 
only really with an interest of playing football. And I don't get the wrong impression. I was not a great athlete at all. I was the 10th string, but nonetheless, it got me to university. And I guess I must've been lost one day because I was in the library and I saw a book called Biomechanics and I picked it up and I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. It's anatomy and physics and how the body works. And to make a long story short, I started to take a few mathematics courses and physics courses, and then applied for a master's degree in astral physics and the biomechanics up at the University of Ottawa. And I was accepted at both, but I chose biomechanics because at this time I was riding my bike and I thought, well, it would be great to do some road cycling in the French Gatineau in Quebec, where the University of Ottawa was. So I did that. And then I, I was going to start a PhD in systems engineering and I met a, I was playing hockey, but now for the university professor's team, we played at the University of Waterloo and I met a professor, Bob Norman. And the teams all have beers together in the dressing room after the game. Good Canadian spirit. Now you meet the hell hell out of one another and then have a beer. And they said, oh, come on over to my lab. I'm just starting spine biomechanics. So that was the story. And when I became a professor, of course, I was trained as a scientist, but oh, docs and athletes would ask if I would consult for them with their back pain. And I said, well, you know, I'm really not trained as a consultant or a clinician. And they said, well, don't worry, we'll be with you. Come and see our patients. And I learned that I had a very different training as to injury mechanisms and mechanically how to provoke them very differently than what they're taught in medical school. So that's how it all started. And it's been this very strange evolution ever since. Absolutely. And tell us a little bit about where you're at now. Obviously you said this is your last week lecturing, but You know, what have you done for the last 32 years? Well, I have been a professor. I've been a department head, a university administrator. The fun part of it though, Mike, has always been the people. You know, I was the first professor that the kids saw out of high school. So if you can imagine me come in, you know, come on in, sit down, take your baseball hats off, (laughs) shut up and listen. And you know, if the class started at eight 30, I would lock the door at eight 30 and they'd be banging on the doors and they didn't know what hit them coming out (laughs) of high school. And it was very polarizing for them. They either loved me or hated me. And I would tell them stories of some of the great athletes that I'd worked with. And they really got into that kind of thing. And my whole job there was really to spark their interest and develop a few questions for the rather remainder of their university career. But I also had the pleasure of teaching the final course before they left, which was the orthopedic spine injury training course. So it was a lot of fun to bookend the program. Yeah. But I'll, as I said, now I'm just going to see patients one or two days a week and maybe have a date with my wife one day a week. And you know, I bet you probably earned that at this point, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, she's a master's athlete and is still competing. She's actually a master's rower. It's just a bit of trivia. She's the U.S. master's women's pairs champ with her sister. Really? So yeah, she is. So uh, all summer long, I'm on the road with them and I'm chief water boy and boat mechanic. (laughs) You're like the most overqualified boat mechanic of all time, right? Well, no, that's quite a science to set up a boat actually. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Okay. So for those who are unfamiliar, what I think a lot of people are interested in is they want to know more about your assessment process. 
So would you mind kind of taking us through that step-by-step so we have a better idea of what you're looking at when somebody comes to you and is dealing with back issues? Yes. Well, I hope the visuals work with this because I'm going to start with three models. They're developed by a fellow named Jerome Fryer out on the West Coast. He has a website called dynamicdiscdesigns.com. So I'll put a plug in for him. I have no business relationship. But the nice thing is he bases a lot of his models on the injury mechanisms that we document in the research clinic. So let me show a couple of injuries, and then I'll talk about how we would determine that a person has them, and that will shape our assessment and then what we do with that assessment in terms of our programming for the particular person afterwards. So, you know, we've known each other quite a number of years now, and you're well aware of the controversies over double-legged squats. Oh, they're the great evil of back pain and people should be doing more one-legged squats and the Bulgarian splits and all this sort of stuff. Well, people go a bit crazy and they don't respect biological limits. So there's nothing wrong with split squats. It's a great exercise up to a limit. And after that, when a person does splits, if they were to split this way, everyone can imagine this half of the cow was mutating posteriorly and the other half mutating anteriorly. So you get this internal stress that isn't present in a double-legged squat, not at all. But if I could show the sacroiliac joints and show, can you see that countermutation that's opposite on both sides? that will eventually work loose and sensitize the sacroiliac joints. Now they cause, or at least once they are a bit loose and sensitized, they're very, they take a long time to desensitize. Now, how would I, how I would provoke that is I would take the person's iliac crest and I'd squeeze very heavily and I might get them to do a lunge, which is provocative and see if that increases or decreases the pain. Or I might squeeze their greater trochanters and create the opposite kind of locking of the joint. Or I might get them to do a squat or simply walk. But knowing the mechanism shaped our pain provocation in our assessment. But immediately I then try working to see if I can decrease their pain and confirm that yes, in fact, that was their pain generating mechanism. But then it would all be after that, avoid the cause, which would be further split squats and that kind of thing, and build a lot of stability around the pelvic range. So that would be one example. The next one would be very common among deadlifters now. And once again, wonderful exercise deadlifts. However, there's people on the internet who are saying things like, you're not a real woman until you can deadlift twice your body weight. And they'll say this to a stay at home mob. And some trainer thinks that within three months, they should be lifting twice their body weight. Well, we both know that the grand old men and women of powerlifting are hitting their prime in their forties. And the reason is it takes that long to build the mineral matrix to withstand the tremendous loads that these great athletes bear. Well, what happens is under a very heavy compressive load, the disc, yes, they compress a little bit, but the majority of the deformation takes place in the end plate, the top and bottom of the 
If you can see now, I'm going to squeeze. Can you see the pressurized nucleus now squirting up into the vertebral body through a fractured or damaged end plate? And those go missed. So a provocative test, I'm just going to take my microphone off and hold it. But I might have the patient then go up on their heels and up on their toes, pardon me, and just bounce on their heels, boom, like that. Well, that's one and a half times body weight. I give them to relax their core the first time and see if that causes pain. And then I might say, push my fingers out to activate their abdominal wall and repeat. And that will either increase or decrease the pain sensitivity from that particular injury mechanism. And then I might say, you know, externally rotate through the shoulders and pull down with the pecs and lats and repent the heel and that would come from them saying, well, you know, I heard my back cough when I was doing that deadlift. And I said, really? Okay, let's prune that a little bit with the provocator's test. The third example that I'll give would be the dynamic disc bulge that is from people treating very lazy patterns in the weight room, very sloppy, bending the spine, putting down the kettlebell. Instead of treating the kettlebell with respect to lift the lower, poor hip hinging. And so they're actually spine hinging under load and these kinds of things. Eventually, as you compress the disc, which you can see the nuclear gel in there, these are wonderful models that Jerome builds. I'm going to flex the spine now and squeeze. And can you see it, that red deformation there, the nucleus of the, of the disc squirting out? Now, if I lock the spine in neutral and the hip hinge, which I know you preach, do you see how that bulletproofs the hydraulics? The disc will compress, but nothing squirts out the back door because the hydraulic pressure is not directed posteriorly. So that's what good form does. Well, I might just have the lifter, the athlete sit in a stool, draw up so they've walked the spine in that neutral position and pull up on the seat pan to compress. So they might say, you know, no pain, no symptoms, yeah. no radiating signs. And then I'll say, fine, slouch. Oh yeah, there's my back pain. And you know, they'll argue with me, well, you know, how deep should I squat? I love to squat deep. And I'll say, yes, but your hips are running out of room. You didn't choose your parents very well. And that style, while it may suit someone else, it doesn't suit you. So anyway, there, that gives you a little bit of an idea of how we use our knowledge of pain generation to provoke it in our test. And then immediately we try and engineer ways for them to move. You know, we might not say don't stop lifting. It's just don't lift that particular way or if they're really jacked up and sensitized, we will really have to be vigilant in teaching them how to lunge and squat just to tie their shoes and get off the toilet without sensitizing their back. So that's some examples anyway. No, that's perfect. Now, how do you take that information? Because you've kind of called all this information. You've got an idea of how this person is presenting. How do you take that and then build out an exercise program from there? Well, we do it in two stages. So the first stage is to, once we've got this very precise diagnosis of their pain mechanism or pain trigger, we try and take it away. 
So we teach them how to move in heat reducing ways. And then the second stage is then now they're, they've desensitized the pain triggers. We now build it all back out to create that pain-free foundation. And sometimes that might require a little bit of stability. Sometimes it might require a little bit of mobility, but it almost always requires a blend of both. Do you remember a video you made? What was it? Magnificent mobility or something? No, I, like don't, that? I don't recall that. <laughs> so here's what I'm interested in because you obviously, you've written numerous books on, you know, backs and back biomechanics. And you obviously just sent me a copy of your, your back mechanic book, which is fantastic. And I appreciate you sending me a copy. But one of the things that you talk about and you preach constantly in that book is, you know, focusing on pain-free movement to expand what you call the movement menu. So could you just explain that concept a little bit more? Because I don't think enough people are lending credence to that. Just this idea of building pain-free movement capacity. Well, it's very popular now. There's a trend on the internet and people may have heard the term pain science. As if this is a new science within the broader area of neuroscience, when it really isn't. There's a very rich science that justifies all of this. And basically what it says is, imagine when you stub your toe or you pick a scab, it sensitizes the toe. The toe might not be fractured. It's just got a bit of a bruised. But if you stub it again, it's even more painful until you lightly touch that toe and you're ready to scream. And people do this to their back. Now, this is called central sensitization. And some people who don't understand the mechanical causes of pain will default and say, oh, the pain is in your head. You know, you're magnifying your symptoms. And I don't believe this at all. What the science shows is people unbeknownst to them because no one has coached them as to what their pain triggers are, they keep picking the scab. And every time they get off the toilet, they fall into their pain. Every time they tie their shoe, they pick the scab and create pain sensitivity. So the first part of it all, like, as you know, is to use what we call the movement tools. Teach them to squat. Okay, well, now I can... Do a perfect squat, short stop squat, as we both know. And I use that to brush my teeth without creating a pain trigger. But if you don't teach the person their pain mechanism, as some of the pain science followers are believing and promoting now, don't coach the person as to what their pain trigger is because then they'll catastrophize and have movement fear. We find that those people have the greatest movement fear of all. And it's all in the way that the coach proceeds. It's the way that the coaching is done. You know, I'm sure you've listened a bit to what Nick Winkleman has to say, how important it is on the skill of coaching. It's good coaches do not create movement fear. Good coaches create movement confidence. And they really empower their clients and their patients too to learn to move well and avoid those pain triggers. But anyway, that's a little bit of what I'm talking about with coaching movement that avoids the pain triggers to wind them down. And then you can get your mojo back and build it all up again. And I love the term sensitization because it just really describes well what's going on with these people. 
Another concept that I really like from the book, and I have actually done something similar to this before, but I've never used the terminology before. You call it virtual surgery. So for people that have not read the book, could you just give them a little insight as to what virtual surgery is? Yes. Well, just a short background on that. I'm sure we both get clients who will say, you know, I've tried everything. I've tried physio. I've tried acupuncture. I've been to the shrink yeah. and I've talked to yeah. the surgeon. The only thing that's only option left is to have surgery. And I'll say, well, really, what kind of physio did you have? And they'll describe it to me. I'll say, well, no wonder it didn't work. They mimicked your pain mechanism. Right. What were they thinking? Right. Did they not give you a thorough assessment? So there's a little bit of a background on it. But here is the reality. Surgery work sometimes because it's the first time that person has ever given themselves a rest. And here's the first clue. In that interview, when you asked them, well, tell me about your current program. Oh, well, I go and do 20 minutes on the elliptical machine. And then I go and do this. Otherwise, I'll go mental. And I'll say, well, when was your last day off? They say, what do you mean? And they say, when yeah. was the last day off? And that's your first clue. So you say, look, I'm going to make you a deal. If you think that your only option left is surgery, let's play this game. And I'm very dramatic about it. I'll get a, a stick or something and I'll touch them on the shoulder and I'll say, there, you've just been granted your surgery. Now, would you do 20 minutes of cardio tomorrow if you had surgery today? And they say, well, no, of course not. And I say, good. You're now going to behave with the appropriate rest and recovery periodized for a post-surgical patient. And guess what? So many of them get better. And in fact, Mike, we follow up with every patient that comes through our clinic. 95% of them avoid surgery. See, that's amazing. And I think this is something that I preach to a lot of people too, where they feel as though surgery is their only option, right? Oh, I have to have surgery. And one of the things that we'll talk to them about, both Bill and I, is, well, why don't we do this first? Why don't we address your underlying issues first, right? So like you said, let's take a break. Let's do some of the therapy that you would do on the backside anyways. And we find often the same thing. When you fix the underlying mechanism or issue that's driving all of this, they never need surgery. So. But right. Yeah. You know, there's the horrible traumatic injuries that, yeah, those are the surgical cases. You know, right. you need screws and things to hold them back together. If there hasn't been major trauma or uh, tumors, something nasty, surgeries, you know, think of the worst, saddest cases you've had. Yeah. I'll bet you dollars to donuts they've been in the post-surgical failures. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Their lives are ruined. So that's funny. That actually leads me to my next question. The subject isn't funny, but what I'm interested in is, I mean, I'm assuming you've seen thousands, probably tens of thousands of backs in your years. Without giving away any private information, would you give us some insight as to maybe the worst or the hardest case that you've ever seen? Well, it's hard to pick one. You know, there, there are some, you know, I almost feel like crying with them when they're telling me their stories and they'll come maybe in a wheelchair, not because they're neurologically dissected or anything like that. It's just that they're painting Then no one has been able to show them how to reduce the nerve trap and that kind of thing. So some of them are sad cases and some of them, we, there's not, I mean, I just have to say, you know, they got arachnoiditis, which is a scarred and nerve root post-surgery. 
Okay. And every time they do this with their arth, it creates back pain because of the neural tension. Or every time they look down, they have excruciating radiating fire in their right foot. You know, in these cases, they're sad. There's really not a hell of a lot you can do and their lives have been ruined. So those are the real sad ones. The ones that turn out the saddest, that start out as the saddest, but we're able to show them a few little things and then all of this healing magic happens. Those are the wonderful successes. So, and, you know, I'm sure you've been in the same. I'll start with somebody that I'm not that hopeful myself. Yeah. And yet they come along famously. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Cause you know, I was going to kind of probe you and figure out, okay, so we talk about the bad stuff. Is there any one in particular that, that stands out like rags to riches, this person you thought had no chance for success and ultimately got back to a high level? I mean, is there anybody out there like that comes to mind? Well, there are, I mean, I, I think you know this, well, we've had quite a few Olympians. Yeah. Many, well over a hundred yeah, actually. Amazing. Yeah. And NFL players, NBA, UFC, professional golfers, and, and a lot of amateur athletes as well, who've been able to uh, regain their athletic mojo and quite a number of them have gone back to set to records in all kinds of sports and regained their athletic career. So those are the real fun. I'm a, this is quite like, so I'm not giving anything over lifter who did have or he had a horror fracture. He broke his syndrome, split front to back. It split wider, right, wide open. And his surgeons, neurosurgeon, orthopedic surgeon said to him, you know, I don't even think you're going to get out of pain, but certainly your athletic career is finished. But he came to me and he said, I hear you're a little bit different. I, can you help me? And I said, well, I'll make you a deal. First of all, let's work to get you out of pain. But he said, I really want to go for the next record again. I said, well, that's not really a discussion to have now. Let's get you out of pain and then you fly up with your wife and they'll host you here. And they will have a good discussion as to whether or not you really want to roll the dice if we can get rid of your pain. Well, sure enough, he did get rid of his pain and he flew up with his wife and he said, no, I want the next world record. And I, I said, if you were my son, I would advise you to just enjoy your pain-free life now. But sure enough, he went for it. And long story short, we did experimental bone callusing, by the way, which, which I showed you in this model very briefly. When you fracture a bone, bone is piezoelectric. And what that means is as you bend it, it creates an electrical charge and sucks in charged ions of magnesium and calcium. So that's a bone remodels under stress. We did a little bone loading and then took five days off. And then another little bone loading and then five days off. We did that for about a year. And then he worked for another year to regain his athleticism and he set the record again. So there might be an example. His name is Brian Carroll. We're just yeah. finishing up a book together. And to tell his story of, first of all, the emotional side of the story, and then the athletic triumphal or tragedy story, and then the science of how he did it. Yeah. So well, that's the next little fun project we're just about to do. But anyway, that, there would be a really fun sort of success story, I guess. No, uh, that's awesome. And yeah, so I was kind of hoping you would talk a little bit about Brian there because he's a guy that I've obviously known for years, not super well, but interacted a little bit. 
strong guy, has pushed the limits of his body, and I knew he was working with you, and he's a big believer in your work. So it's been cool to kind of watch him come back and really evolve as an athlete. It's been very cool to see. Yeah, yeah. He's a terrific fellow on all counts. Perfect. So here's a question that I'm interested in because, I mean, you are prolific with regards to getting information out there, whether it's books, DVDs, lecturing. It seems like your information is everywhere. So, you know, it's readily available if somebody wants to go and learn more about your system. But I think one of the great things about a podcast or an interview in this fashion is that there's the immediacy or there's the the relevancy of what you're working on now. Because you know as well as I do, if you publish something eight years ago, well, your thoughts have changed and your process might have changed. So <laughs> what I'm interested in is what has maybe changed for you in the last year? What is something that you're really dialed in or tuned into that's changed how you either assess or train or program for your clients and your athletes that you work with? Well, that's a pretty deep question, Like. There hasn't been anything that has changed our approach. And I would have to say that we haven't really changed direction throughout my whole career. It's always been headed in the same direction. And I think that's because of the scientific foundation that we quite try and create before we make a public statement or before we make a, a recommendation. Sure. We've tested it and we don't have to go back and say, oh, we're going to change our mind now. So we just keep adding the, to the base. But well, here's something that you may want to put your kids to bed before they hear this <laughs> next bit. But you're in Indiana and Indiana is home the Kinsey Institute. Yeah. Okay. That's the Center for Sexual Health Research, I guess, in yep. the U.S. Well, yep. here's the funny thing. I am sure that you have had clients in the past, and certainly if you ask any family doc, they will all tell you that their patients and your clients come to you and say, you know, the last time we had sex was six months ago. We've been celibate ever since because we ruined our back and we're now afraid to take that chance again. And when, you know, we would hear these stories and then we looked up the guidelines to guide trainers and clinicians what to give advice to their uh, patients. They don't exist. So we thought, well, we'll create an atlas to, so that you folks have a foundation to, to give a recommendation upon. So that's what we did. We took 15 couples and they went to the lab and if <laughs> you can believe it. Wow. And then we, we measured spine load. We measured hip loads and these kinds of things. And the brave, very brave woman whose graduate work, this was Natalie Sidorkowitz, and she's been publishing these atlases in different clinical journals to guide clinicians. But here's the thing, the clinician has to determine the pain trigger in the particular patient. So is it a flexion intolerance, a motion intolerance, an extension intolerance, a load intolerance, and then look up on a table as to what positions they should avoid and what positions they can still utilize and not go near that particular pain triggers. But you know, then we did some other things, Mike, that again, you asked me for something new, so this yeah. is new. Three years ago, I never thought I'd use the word orgasm. But when I learned this, that no one had ever measured orgasm before in terms of muscle activation and all this kind of stuff. So we were the first. 
Then the Kinsey Institute became so interested because politically in the U.S. they wouldn't be allowed to do this kind of research. Sure. You know, someone would shut them down saying, we're not using public money to study sex and all that. You have a very, well, particularly now, a very strange country. Yes. But anyway, so we do that, that kind of work and we're working with the Kinsey now to look at, you know, hip replacements, knee replacements and different disorders. And uh, they're coming up and working with us on that. But to, just to finish that off, orgasm in some men is a non-event. You can hardly tell what's going on. And in other men, believe it or not, they will put their spine into the most deviated, contorted posture and then activate their spine and their abdominal muscles 100%. Now, can you imagine putting your back in a most vulnerable position and then pulsing to a hundred percent. Right. Do you see what the injury mechanism is? Absolutely. And yet in other men, it's a non-event. So we had no idea of the range of response. And I don't think the kids see, well, no one in the world did. So this has exploded with international interest. So here's a spine geek finishing his off his career in part with some of this with, along with my student, Natalie. And I never thought three years ago, I'd even mentioned that word, but right. there you go. I thought, well, yeah, no. And <laughs> so isn't that crazy or I, in terms of evolution? Absolutely. And you know, I, hopefully I came across the right way because I didn't mean, have you flipped on anything? I think the biggest thing that, and you know, this as well as I do at a certain point, you've kind of got your philosophy and the overarching, like big rocks are there. It's more of a fine tuning process. You know, and the, the analogy that I always use is tightening the screws, you know, so just yeah. doing what you're doing at a higher level, having a greater appreciation for what goes on, you know, a more refined assessment process. But wow, that was not the direction I expected, but definitely no. fascinating research that you're doing. That's very cool. Yeah, it's been just amazing. So I got one more big topic that I want to hit on, and then we'll kind of go into the last part of the interview here. But one quote from your book that I wanted to comment on is this. The best clinicians see you fewer times as they teach you how to take responsibility for your healing and give you the tools to do so. Now, the reason I picked this is because this is so different from how the traditional medical model works. So are you seeing personally more practitioners following this kind of mindset? Well, I you to answer that with, I've got a little bit of evidence to answer that. I know there are growing numbers of clinicians who are following our approaches. I, but you know, it's a counter to what they only get paid when they see patients. And so a clinician cures a patient, they just cut off the gravy tree. Yeah. So, you know, it's not in their best interest. However, I only ever see patients once. I see them for a three-hour session and then show them the cause of their pain and what they need to do to create a plan to stop it, be sensitized, and then build a pain-free foundation. The only evidence I have, I mean, it's easy enough to blow through my hat and say that. I did a, a three-day training session with a group of clinicians in Montana. And I understood from the administrators when I spoke to them a year later that they had actually reduced the number of times each clinician was seeing with the typical back pain patient. So that's the only evidence I have. But um, I, I, people who follow our approaches certainly 
fact, we'll see patients fewer times. And uh, as I said, I've kept score of the efficacy rates. They should be a lot more effective. Absolutely. You know, it's just so interesting because uh, I'm going to speak for Bill here, but that's very much the model that he works within at our physical therapy practice at IFAST. It's, you know, he's, we don't take insurance, so they're not coming three times a week for six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it is. You know, generally he'll see them two to three times, get them, you know, hour and a half at a time to make sure he's got plenty of time to teach them, you know, the exact exercises that they need to do, the things that help them create pain-free movement, which I think we can both agree is critically important. So it's just really cool. And I think, as you so kindly alluded to, we are in a very strange time here in the United States for a lot of reasons, but especially with regards to healthcare. And so, you know, I think the model that we are using is going to be very efficacious going forward just because, you know, if you have $10,000 deductible, you're probably a lot more willing to see a really good physical therapist two or three times versus racking up, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 physical therapy visits and not ultimately getting the results that you want. Well, if I ever get Trump's here, I'll send them over to you and Bill, but, and you know, we both know that it, particularly in the American model, one drives clinical practice is don't get sued. Yeah. And that so much money is spent on all of these tests. So the clinicians don't get sued. And, you know, when you're going to live in that kind of environment, you got to pay a huge overhead. And I, I think that's why your medical system is collapsing. I couldn't agree with you more. All right. So I don't know how many podcasts you've listened to, Stu, but I will tell you that the big question that I ask every single person is this, and I can't wait to hear your answer. The big question is, if you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Stuart McGill one piece of advice about training in or life, what would it be? Oh, wow. What a huge question. There was a radio show on that a, a couple of weeks ago that I was listening to, and I wondered what my answer to that would be. And, you know, on one hand, I want to say I wouldn't change a thing because obviously that would alter where we are now. Right. But and having said that, you might find this very strange, Mike, but I would say I should have listened more to my father. Really? And I didn't. Yes. He somehow what didn't have a formal education. But he knew how to train. He knew how to fight. He knew how to speed train for denser neural drive to muscles. He knew all this technique and I didn't listen. I was more interested in building more muscle. And I think my athletic career suffered because of it. I should have listened more to him, but I didn't think my dad knew anything, but to knew everything. He was very much like, oh, say a modern Pavel Satsuling would yeah. be with speed training and relaxation and don't get too big. So you push your punches rather than snap and, you know, anyway, I hope you appreciate where I'm coming from. He didn't live very long, so I. Never got to wise up soon enough to listen to them, but I wish I did. Anyway, there you go. That's fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic. I love it. All right. So last but not least, we have our lightning round and then I'll let you know. (laughs) And you know where I'm going with this first one. I have to ask how, it's a two-parter, how long have you had the stash and what originally prompted you to grow it? Well, I'm a Canadian country boy. And I've always had a beard or mustache or sideburns in the seventies, I guess. Yeah. So I, 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 
never been completely shaved except for once. And I did shave. My daughter was probably about 14 or 15 at the time. And she said, dad, why don't you shave? We've never seen it before. And so I thought for 10 milliseconds and I went and shaved it off and my wife liked it. My kids liked it. <laughs> and then I went to the airport, you know, to put, to fly somewhere to, and I landed somewhere to do a game and people who picked me up at the airport and, you know, this was days before the internet and yeah. pictures and whatnot. And they'd say, well, we didn't know what you looked like. We were just told, uh, when you see the mustache, you'll know it. And that's him. <laughs> So anyway, they were so disappointed when I shaved and I realized, geez, that's part of the gig. You know, I didn't realize how big it was. So I'm kind of stuck with it. I have always sort of had it and that's just the way it is, I guess. It's truly grown to cult-like proportions because <laughs> we have like our own internal rating system at iFast. We've got best hair in the fitness industry. You are unparalleled champion when it comes to the best mustache. So just thought you would like to know that. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> so, so here's another one that I love to ask people. And I think this is, again, a, just a fascinating question to ask you. What book or books are you reading right now? Well, this might surprise people. I haven't been a big book reader through my life just simply because of the volume of medical reports and patient reports that I've had to read sure. for my job. So I, I really haven't read many books and I'm not reading one right now, but you know, I am, I'm going to pick up a copy next week of Ralph Nader's new book. And I'm sure you know, Ralph Nader, yeah. who, you know, was the consumer advocate and he's run for your presidency a few times. Yeah. I think he's a pretty wise man and he's recently written a book for the rest of the world on how to handle this new USA. And I heard a little radio interview with him on public radio, and I thought he had some pretty good advice. So I might pick up that book next week as Canadians and how we're going to survive this new America. Yes. Could be very interesting. Hey, well, I hope it is only that. Yes, me too. It's nothing worse than that, but we've got one hell of a, a risk right now. Yes. The world is. Absolutely. Number Could you imagine? Ten. Let me ask you something, if sure. I may, just for 20 seconds. Sure. If 9-11 occurred tomorrow and it came from offshore, no, not tomorrow. Let's say it, it happened in January once your new president had power. Yeah. And if that came from offshore, would the reaction be catastrophic to the rest of the world? Ooh, man, that's a real tough question, Stu. I would think, I think what is pushed towards him, I don't think he's as hot-headed as some people would like to think. And I would hope that he understands his limitations as a president because he's not the career politician type. So I would hope that he puts the right people around him that help him make sound decisions. I could be totally off on that, but I would like to think the measured the response would be measured, but at the same time, not extreme. And I could, I'm very willing to admit I am an optimist, always have been, always will be. But I would like to think that, yes, there would be consequences for that, for whomever they figure out had done that. But at the same time, it would be a measured response and not an extreme response. 
Okay. I could be wrong. I could be I, wrong. I hope you're not. <laughs> Me too. So here's a big one for you. What, if you had to give me one or maybe two, what would you define or describe as your career highlight to this point? Yeah, I, you know, like, I don't think that way. I just, I like that. I like I that. I like that way. And yeah, it, to me, it's a, it's the little victories day after day. And, you know, so hopefully they're more than the little failures, but you might have uh, you know, say a celebrity that you've made a difference in their ability to win at something. Yeah. But then a, a stay-at-home mom or an older fella or an ex-soldier has written you a nice letter now saying, thank you. You're the only one that changed my life. Yeah. You listen to me and all I can do is thank you from the bottom of my heart. And that's it. And that's as good as it gets to me. Don't ever think of what's something that's, that, that's big. Yeah, I just don't think that way. You know, I couldn't agree more with that. This is something that I always try and relay to people. It's really, there's two parts to this, right? And I'm not trying to take over your interview. But, you know, number one is you create relationships with every person you work with, right? You know, any person that you treat, any person that you work with, there is a relationship there. So to see any of those people be successful makes you feel good, right? So there's like, like you said, it's not one highlight. It's these constant little victories that I think drive us forward. But then number two, and this is something that's personal to me, is that, you know, some of my biggest stories are not my biggest, highest profile athletes. It's the people that I've worked with for the longest period of time that I've seen grow and evolve. You know, one girl I always refer to, is a girl I've trained since she was 15 years old and she's like 23 now. So to watch her not only grow as an athlete, perform at the division one level, but, you know, then to just go on and be like this really productive member of society and just a great human being. Those are the things that I think to me mean way more than any one career accolade or highlight, if you will. Yeah. Fantastic. So good for you. Thank you. So one last question for you. What advice would you give to a new physical therapist or strength coach who wants to keep their athletes not only strong, but resilient over the course of their career? Yeah. Well, now I'm going to be a little arrogant. I'm okay with that. I want that. I stand behind the things that I've produced, and I would have to say, that if they're getting a person out of pain, they should know the material in the back mechanic. And once they're successful at reducing the pain sensitivity, shift over to building a pain-free foundation and do that following the principles that we've outlined in Ultimate Back Fitness. And then after that, I would suggest they become familiar with athletic techniques that people like. Well, Robertson, Hartman, and Pavel Satsulin, and people like that keep honing their clinical assessment tools and keep honing their programming and their coaching skills. If you're a therapist, you should be a coach, but that's not always the case. So just uh, continual skill development, even when you're reading a patient, yep. become more skilled and more attentive in all of the signs of that person showing you. Anyway, that's... No, that's fantastic advice. I love it. 
All right, my friend, we're gonna take a quick break in this double episode to mention the Complete Coach Certification. If you wanna learn more about how I've taken Dr. McGill's work and applied it into my own training with my clients and my athletes, the Complete Coach Certification is a great place to start. Not only do you get the cert, but there's an entire bonus product where I really dive into core training, how I program it, how I coach it, the progressions and regressions that I use. So if you're interested in learning more, head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com. So much great information on core training and how I'm applying Dr. McGill's model to the clients and athletes that I see. So without any further ado, let's jump into episode number two. Could you start by just telling us what you've been up to since the last time we've chatted? <laughs> well, good evening, Mike. First of all, it's good to see you. I don't know how many years it's been, but probably a year a and a half, two years. Yeah, great. Well, two years ago, I retired from the university officially. Now I just see patients when asked, and of course, they're back pained athletes and non-athletes, I suppose. And I put on the odd clinical course when asked, and I teach master courses on assessment of low back pain here at home in Gravenhurst, Ontario. Oh, that's awesome. So, I didn't know you did yeah. that. Yeah. I love the slower life. I get to spend a bit more time out on the lakes working on boats and cabins and things like that. Yeah. Other hobbies beyond just repairing people's backs, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's what I would love to start with, because if anybody wants like the broad strokes of what you do and they want your approach, I would reference them to go back to our first interview or definitely pick up one of your books, because I think that gives a great foundation. But in the meantime, I have just like a bunch of random questions that I've kind of picked up over the years after hearing you talk and following your work for so long. And one thing that I've always been fascinated by, a while back, you had talked about the various types of spines that you see and how maybe certain spines are better for certain sports than others. So would you mind elaborating on that just a little bit? Yeah, what an interesting question and a way to pose it. Well, well, there's a bit of a story that goes with that, Mike. I love it. If we go back approximately 32 years, I was a young professor, and I was asked to be an expert witness on a couple of murder cases. And you're probably wondering, wow. what the heck yeah. would a court want testimony from a, a spine mechanics person, but nonetheless, I was paired up with a professor of forensic anthropology. And, you know, you have to remember, this is before computers, and her job was to identify bodies based on skeletal features. Okay. So there was no hair, there was no skin, and she would be able to say where, what haplogroup this spine and this hip architecture belonged to and that kind of thing. And every time she brought up a feature from a group from a different part of the world, I would look at that and say, wow, that is a fabulous advantage to express a specific type of athleticism, or it might create resilience to injury, or it might predispose the person to injury. Sure. And then all of a sudden, you pair that up with understanding how martial arts varies around the world and how different groups have taken advantage of their strengths and exploited the weaknesses of opponents and that kind of thing. But that's where the story starts in okay. the world of forensic anthropology. But to get specific now and try and answer your question, 
think of the shape of people's spinal discs. So let's just take a very simple variable like size. Okay. Is the person a heavy skeleton person with a thick spine or are they a slender person with a thin spine? Well, you can imagine bending a thin willow branch back and forth. It doesn't create any stress. Right. But if you put a big load on that willow branch, you'd bend it and buckle it and break it quite quickly. Now let's take a thicker branch. You bend that branch once and it will fracture. So the thick branch doesn't like bending, but it can support tremendous compressive tension, shear, twist loads. So there's just an example using a branch of wood. Now consider spine. When you look at the great golfers, they typically have a slender spine. Simply, there's much less stress that accumulates in a slender spine, but you don't see those spines playing middle linebacker in the NFL. And the NFL spine, by definition, has to be a load-bearing spine, and generally it's much larger. You'll find it very difficult to find an offensive tackle or a middle linebacker who can drive a golf ball very far. So if it was strength and athleticism, the football players would win, but they don't. They're not the elastic recoiled torsional spring of a golfer. So there's the beginning from a size perspective. Okay. The bigger the disc, the more limacon the shape. So if you were to take a bird's eye view, it would look like a lima bean, whereas the typical golfer's spine is ovoid. So when that twist, again, it doesn't create what we call a stress riser. And the stress is equilibrated. And by the way, you can do many more sit-ups with a slender spine. Right. It's not so much of an issue. But if, again, you take that big, heavy American footballer or a large skeleton woman or man, they won't do well with sit-ups. You'll find that they'll actually accumulate posterior stresses in the disc much sooner. But having said that, if you look at a yogi's spine, who again, typically on an MRI, you don't need to tell me who's the yogi and who, <laughs> who's the weight trainer, right? because the discs are nice and plump. So when a weightlifter or a power lifter or someone who does weight training, when they bend forward and they have a little bit of a disc bulge, it's almost always a posterior disc bulge that grows or increases as you bend forward. So sitting at the computer and whatnot is what triggers their discomfort. But then you take the typical yogi master. They have adapted the collagen and the ground substance of the discs to be loose and pliable. They don't bear much compressive load, but when they move forward, the disc bulges reduce. They get disc bulges when they move into extension because the collagen is so loose, it actually buckles mm. on the compressive side. So there again, we see totally different pain patterns based on the architecture and form and function. The larger discs, interestingly enough, respond much better to McKenzie extension protocols for a posterior disc bulge that have an open fissure because they have more stress when you move into the extension to actually migrate some of the nuclear gel. And then you'll notice that orthopedic diseases follow different groups in the world. For example, you're well aware if you look at a spine from a bird's eye view, there's the disc and then the facet joints in behind. Mm -hmm. Some people have very open facet joints. So when they go into extension, the facet joints pack on one another like shingles on a roof. They go into extension, they create tremendous bending stress on the pars bone. 
However, you won't win the Olympics in gymnastics if you don't have open facets because you need the torsional right. mobility of the spine. So the very feature that allowed you to be a competitive gymnast predisposed you to fracture of the pars, which leans to spondylolisthesis. Now, if I said to you, name your athletes that get spondylolisthesis, who's the first group you'd probably name? Yeah, like gymnasts. Gymnasts, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what gave them the athletic ability was also a predisposition to that orthopedic injury versus let's go back to the offensive tackle who doesn't twist very much. They have closed facets. So when they go through a flexion extension cycle, the facets just glide past one another. They get capsular stress, but they don't get that bone stress strain reversal stress that would lead to a spondy. So isn't it interesting? Now that's just a start of the discussion on, right. on spines, but I could go to hips and, you know, we know why different types of power production in the squat, for example, come from the nations that have the most dysplastic hips. So the highest rate of hip dysplasia in Caucasian Europe is in Poland. Yeah. Well, they have the shallowest hip sockets. That's what leads to hip dysplasia. And yet a lot of great Olympic lifters and deep squatters come from Poland. And when you measure the power production in the squat throughout the squat, the power production out of the hole in the bottom is ungodly. Now you take the opposite in orthopedic disease, which is FAI, which comes from having a very deep hip socket. Where's the highest rate of FAI in the world? Well, I don't know exactly, but I do know in Europe. So let's travel yeah. across Europe now and, and go to the Celtic nations. And I know what the name Robertson is, but <laughs> I, I also know your hips a little bit. Cause I yeah. we did a hip exam years ago, didn't we? Yes. It just in, in one of the courses, but nonetheless, so, so it's, you're lucky <laughs> you don't follow the curse, Yeah. but so the Celts on average, and I'm not saying every pole has shallow hip sockets, nor does every Celt have deep hip sockets. I'm just talking about the average of the population, but sure. nonetheless, they have half FAI because they have the most congenitally deepest hip sockets. Yep. But when you measure the power production out of the deep squat, it's not very good. Right. <laughs> Talk to Dan, John, and people right. like that about yep. it. And, you know, we're all the same. We're all about the same age. We've all had hip replacement. We all did hip squats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you can spot the Celtic professors here. But anyway, but the power production is in the top half. And when you measure that type of hip doing, a, say, a deadlift or some kind of a pull from the floor, the power production out of the hole isn't very impressive. But as soon as that bar passes the knees, man, they hit second gear and yep. they don't fail in the top half and it walk out. Yeah. So isn't it interesting how you can predict athletic performance, orthopedic disease, and some of these other variables that I've listed off? You know, I know we talked last time about what's the McGill method and the McGill approach. You know, when you look at medicine these days, there's been quite a revolution and trend towards what we call precision medicine. So think of where cancer was. Even the last time we spoke, you know, there was chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but now they match the dose to the gender, the genetic haplogroup, the exact type and phenotype of cancer cell. And they're doing so much better yeah. by really matching the treatment in a precision way. So I also am extending that now to our world of performance enhancement, strength and conditioning, getting rid of back pain, 
the assessment of some of these much higher level variables and the level of mastery that, that some people are obtaining allow the not only precision medicine, but precision, whatever it is that we do mm. in training and advising people. And the results are coming along. Yeah, it's pretty cool where we're at. And just thinking about where I was 16 years ago when I first got introduced to your stuff, the massive shift and the massive just evolution of where we're at. And as far as our understanding, it's totally different. Yeah. yeah. So another set of concepts that I know you've discussed over the years are stiffness, relaxation, and impulse. So I'd love to hear you discuss just briefly how those are related and how they go about improving athletic performance. Because unfortunately, a lot of us, and hopefully not myself anymore, but so many of us for so long, were just caught up on this idea of strength, more strength. And I love these concepts. Right. Okay. Well, that's going to have to start off with a bit of a story as well. I so love if it. you can just are with me. Think of the great athletes that you've worked with in many different sports. Did they really test to be the strongest? And I would say the answer to that is no, unless they were a power lifter. So exactly. of course, strength, strength, strength trumps in power lifting. But when you think of the other athletes and you, you measure their athleticism, it's they were great strength pulsers. Of course, they had great situational IQ and fabulous movement patterns, but pulsing is what creates speed because here, here's the first foundational principle. When a muscle contracts, it creates force, agreed. It also creates stiffness, which stops movement. So again, in, in the UFC and in some of those fabulous athletes, I mean, I've measured some of the greatest strikers and some of the ones who aren't so great, the ones with the bigger muscles end up pushing their punches. They're slower because they use muscle. So muscle is big, high force, but it's also big, high stiffness, which mm -hmm. slows. So the ones who strike the hardest are the ones who create the pulse of strength to create enormous velocity. And then they relax to allow the velocity to build as the closing distance velocity increases of the fist to the target or the foot mm -hmm. to the target, et cetera. And then when they hit the target, their body turns to stone. So, you know. In football, for example, I, you know, you ask some of the old guys, who did you hate to play against? And a lot of them would say, oh, now I'm having a seniors moment. Who is that fella who played for the silver and, and black team out of Howie Long? The no, Raiders? No, it was Oakland Raiders. Yeah. The defensive back. And he wasn't a big guy, but they said when he hit you, you'd rather be hit by a car oh, because yeah. he had that magnificent ability to turn to his body to stone her in the NHL. You know, you get some yeah. of the old NHL guys and you say, who did you hate to play? Not because they were dirty players or anything like that. It's just they hurt when they hit you. And yeah. it was, you know, Scott Stevens, the, the great defenseman from out east. And then guys like Messier, Mark Messier. Yeah. Not a big guy, but he turned his body to stone. So this, this idea of pulsing and it creates speed, it creates harder strikes. Then the next principle in all of this is our body is a mechanical linkage. So think of heavy equipment and a backhoe. In order for the backhoe to dig earth, you have to put down the stabilizers and anchor the main body of the tractor to the ground. Otherwise it'll get pulled around sure. as you pull earth. Now let's consider the 400 pound bench presser. 
let's assume primary bench press muscle is pec major. Just let's assume that. Yeah, sure. Do that, but whatever. <laughs> okay. So pec major is a uniarticular muscle crossing the front of the shoulder joint, the ball and socket joint. Well, consider distal to the ball and socket joint, pec major flexes the arm around and creates a wonderful push. So if you're pushing a weight off your body in a bench press or you're standing boxing on the offensive line, same thing, pec major. Remember, you can bench press 400 pounds. Don't we wish? But anyway, <laughs> now think of that same muscle proximal to the ball and socket joint. It connects the rib cage. So it's action there. It actually bends the rib cage towards the shoulder joint, which is an energy leak. That's an undesired movement. So all, if I'm standing now, I can only press half my body weight when I'm standing. So my 400 pound bench press now goes out the window. However, I have 400 pound capacity in my pec major. So on, on distally, I get the arm flexion, creating the push proximally, my chest collapses towards my shoulder. So I can't do very much. However, if I stiffen proximally my torso, I arrest the energy leakage of that muscle on the proximal side, distally 100% of pec major is now dedicated to creating the distal push in athleticism. So that's the next idea of this idea of stiffness. To create a pulse, you've got to fire a cannon off concrete. You can't fire it out of a canoe. So now you need a proximal stiffness in the linkage. So if I wanted to wiggle my little finger as fast as I could, I had to stiffen my wrist. If I want to wiggle my wrist, I had to stiffen my elbow. And what's the mother of all proximity in the linkage? It's your core. Oh. And I hate that word, but yeah, we know sure. what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. we can define that all day long. But anyway, it's between the ball and socket joints of the shoulders and the hips. So, you know, it's no coincidence. We have this wonderful mobility and capability in the ball and socket joints, either end of the core that when it is stiffened, it now arrests those movements and directs the wonderful power developed across the shoulders and hips by, you know, the shoulder complex, gluteal muscles, psoas, hip flexors, you name it. But that gets expressed distally now. Mm. So this concept of stiffness, compliance, impulsing, it's all wound up into this expression of athleticism and, you know, it's funny when I see, you know, some of our junior colleagues who just don't have the mastery yet coaching things yes. that are performance decreasing <laughs> and the reducing of injury resilience and whatnot. But anyway, there's a little bit of a start. I hope that now, introduces those notions. That, that was a fantastic answer. And I want to jump around a little bit because obviously a buzzword, we mentioned core, that's always been a buzzword, but. Another buzzword is, you know, return to play protocols, especially when it comes to sports and athletes. But one thing I don't hear talked about quite as much is, you know, return to life protocols for the general population. And I would just love to get your opinion on how maybe the rehab approach is different or it should be different for a layperson versus a high level athlete. Okay. Well, uh, let me take a stab at it and correct me if I'm getting too far off the beaten path wow. on this. I think that it's, you know, a human is a human in the basic form. So I might not differentiate the two. Yeah. Bill Parisi has asked me to come and do talks at the NFL Strength Coaches Association in the last couple of years. And in both of my lectures, a good portion of it was how to return a player from the NFL back to civilian life. So mm -hmm. now, you know, detune the athleticism and get their health back. Yeah. So 
they live a good life. You know, they have to manage injuries. They've got to lose weight. They've got to change their diet, et cetera. What I'm talking about basically is changing habits. Now let's take the average person or lay public member who has back pain. What's causing their back pain? Is it the movement habits that they have throughout the day? It may very well be in some people. Others, it is their training habits and their programming in the gym. Others, it's their job. Anyway, the point of it is they too have the same challenge as the NFL player returning to civilian life in, in, in terms of changing their habits. So, the, you know, this is what we do in a coaching sense. Rarely is it a single event that leads to a back injury. It's much more common to be accumulative stress because of a chronic pattern. And the stress accumulates and it simply outpaces the rate of repair. So in, in that story, I'm not seeing a heck of a lot of difference in concept between an athlete and a little, just to say one of our more common clients. Yeah. Is that headed in the right direction for you? Absolutely. And that's something that I try and express to the people that come into our gym because we have such a broad swath of people that come in and everything from general population, they just want to move better and feel better up to high level performing athletes. And one of the things that we always try and explain to them is we want you to achieve your highest level of athleticism and whatever that means to you. But we're always going to match things based on where you're at movement capacity wise and where you're at with regards to intensity. And I think those are two things that are always going to differentiate an athlete from a gen pop person, right? Their, their skill level and their movements and the intensity and the amount of force production or whatever you want to say, they just have more intensity than say a gen pop person does. But that doesn't mean that you're going to take a gen pop person and treat them wholly differently than you would an athlete. It's just kind of moving them back on the continuum a little bit. Yeah. I think I recall these discussions that we've had before where you know, how are we con go going to converge on what an optimal training program would be, whether they're an athlete tapering down for competition or they're a stay-at-home mom now yes. with a couple of young kids who has all kinds of demands. How, how do you converge on an optimum for training? And I, maybe the listeners might appreciate how I would go about it. And I, yeah. I, I think I know you well enough that you'd probably be in the same, but you can comment on that. I ask them, what are the demands of your life? Now, whether that's competing in the UFC or it's picking up a one-year-old and changing their diapers, you should be able to formalize the demands in terms of physicality on that person. And then simply assess the person. Are you able to meet those demands? Yeah. Or maybe you have demands that are aspirations. Are you able to meet those future aspirations? So you assess the person. Can they meet those demands? And then it's simple. After that, you train the difference. You train what they want to be able to do or need to be able to do, but currently can't. And that stops a lot of this craziness that's going on the internet that I see, you know, why am I getting these person after person calling up with back pain? They had such unrealistic goals because someone on Facebook said, oh, you're a stay-at-home mom after training for three months. You should be able to deadlift your body weight. Wait a second. Biological adaptation doesn't happen that way. And we've already talked about different types of spines that we get from our parents. Yeah. Some people, that's just not right. So it prevents 
and mitigates against injury that come from just un unrealistic goals. So yeah. it's a way, you know, survey the goals, figure out what they need, train the difference and don't get too crazy. And you will have a more satisfying life, I would say, with less pain, that which I'm kind of starting to appreciate now in my yeah. mid-60s. <laughs> Can I admit something to you? I would love I, that. I have no pain. That's amazing. I have zero pain. I, you know, I used to have pain in my 30s and 40s, most certainly my 20s when I would play sports and I would train far too much strength, but now I train a little bit more mobility. Do you want to hear about my biblical training week? That uh, Absolutely. Um, Okay. So there's seven days in a week, two days a week. I put a bit more effort into strength training with a power thought. So mm -hmm. I still want a little bit of hip power. I want, sure. you know, if I stumble, I got to get my foot out in front of me to arrest the fall. Absolutely. And I still, you know, if I'm rolling with one of the big guns in jujitsu or something, I still want to have <laughs> a little bit of co competitiveness yeah. left, you know. So two days a week, I focus and think about that. But two days a week, and you will probably love this, I focus much more on mobility, which I never did when I was a younger guy. You know, I'm starting to get a bit more of head forwards, thoracic flexion and kyphosis. And it just happens as you get a bit older. So I'll do a little bit of thoracic extension work. And, you know, I've had hip replacement, so I have to do a little bit of work on my hips and my sure. knees and whatnot. And my hands. So that's two days a week, a little bit of more thought on mobility. Two days a week, I do something else. So, you know, yesterday I had a really good bike ride, just mm -hmm. enjoyed it in the winter. I might go out for a ski or something, but I don't want to ride a bike a long way today. I had <laughs> enough yesterday, but today I adapt from that. Right. You know? And then one day a week, usually Sunday, or actually in my life, it's usually Monday because on the weekends, I'm ready to raise hell. I don't want to rest, but <laughs> my rest day. But then that's my day just to allow the adaptations to take place. Yeah. Mike, I have zero pain. That's awesome. I feel fabulous. I love hearing that. And I think that's such a great message because so many people assume that, oh, I'm getting older and I'm, this is just part of it. And I try and explain to people, I mean, I'm not your age yet, but you know, I'm almost 41 and Man, I remember when I was in my 20s, my back would hurt for three days after I would bench press, you know, because I would arch so hard to try and set up to get a bigger bench press. So it's just great to hear that you are feeling so good and that you've adapted your training to find a system that works for you. You know, people said, oh, you're too young to retire from the university. What you do? Mike, I just locked the door and I walked away and, you know, I've never been back and I don't miss it. It's fabulous. Because when I started, as I said, there were no computers. We used to write mail, <laughs> right. Right. physical mail and students would come to office hours in the last few years. They just email me and say, oh, can you, and I say, no, come to the bloody office. We're going to have some other, <laughs> you know? but anyway, my point in all of that was I became a sitting computer operator. Yeah. My health was going to hell. Yeah. And here I was supposedly a rehab specialist, and I was a computer operator. Yeah. Something wasn't right with that. I had to get out of there. And all I'm saying is I have no pain. I get up in the morning. I take my dog for a walk. I have breakfast. I do a little bit of my, you know, work that I have to do, administer the things around here. For sure. And then I go out to the shop and I do physical things and 
you know, and then I might work with a patient or an athlete or whatnot, but boy, I'm so much more healthy now. Yeah. I love hearing that. I love hearing that. So here's something else that I'm interested in because obviously I've followed your work thinking back. I remember the first McGill article I referenced was in 2001. I was in my master's program and I remember citing you because I had to write a paper on core training. And then I got your book in 2003. So I followed you for a really long time. And one thing I'm not sure, and it might've passed me, passed me by in the years, but I don't remember you talking as much about a flexibility assessment. And I know in our last show, we talked a lot about your movement assessment, squatting and lunging and watching people move. But is that part of your screen? Is there a flexibility element or is it more strictly movement-based at this point? The answer is it depends. Okay. Simply because, by the way, I don't really perform screens. I do back pain assessment to converge on a precise mechanism. So, yeah. But again, let's take an example of a 75-year-old female probably has a little osteoporosis or certainly some osteopenia. Would I do the same assessment on her as I would, you know, a young lad who's coming in and is competing and you name the sport? So the answer is no, obviously. Sure. So they're all very different assessments. So... Talking about spine flexibility, again, the answer is it depends. Right. So if I take a person and I've documented their injury and their pain mechanism to be a focal disc bulge with an open fissure through the collagen, which means it grows when they sit and tie their shoes and it shrinks a little bit and they go for a walk, then I would say, you know, there's not much margin for mobility there. If I'm going to get a load-bearing spine, once again, I'm going to have to dial back the spine mobility, focus on hip mobility and hip hinging and those kinds of things. Then the next person who comes in, and we did a study on belly dancers before I retired, (laughs) which was a lot of fun. They had marvelous mobility and control in their spine, but they had no strength. And that's just the way it is. When you have that much mobility, or you're, you, you really practice heavy yoga, you are giving up the ability to bear heavy load. You can't have it both ways. The adaptations in biology won't allow it. Right. So that would be another consideration on what I would assess. So what are gotcha. the ultimate demands, whether they're going to meet them or not? Obviously, the far end of the spectrum would be a power lifter. Mobility is a detriment. I meet the stiffest person. We bind them up with neoprene wraps (laughs) on their knees. We stiffen their torso with lifting suits to make them as elastically stiff as we possibly can. Then the next person walks in and they're an Olympic rower. So, okay. Now that's very interesting. I don't know if you know, I'm going to brag about my wife. I love it. You you, you know, she was on our national team, national rower in the eighties, then retired and raised the kids and whatnot. She got back in a boat about six years ago. To make a long story short, she then became the Canadian champ, then the American champ. She won the Worlds last year. So I can honestly say I sleep with the fastest woman over 50 years of age in the world. (laughs) Anyway, once we get past that, consider the rowers and how different rowing programs around the world have gone through eras, and I've certainly consulted with them over the years. You know, there are some teams that focus very heavily on deadlifting, and they row in a sea. They go up to the catch with a big flex spine, and they grunt their way as they pull through 
the rowing cycle. And then the next rower is sitting taller in the boat. They slide up the slide into compression, and then they start to unfold and extend the hips and knees, and then they pulse. And then at that point, sitting tall, as the hips explode, the spine bends just a little bit, and then it whips. It whips the boat. So that is a contrast between an elastic athlete being that sit up tall in the boat rower and really whip the boat versus the strength rowing athlete who does well training deadlifts and whatnot. So do you see one should be focused on training and tuning elastic storage and recovery of elastic energy, whereas the other one is a strength thrower. So totally different techniques, totally different. And they do get different injuries, by the way. It's so mm. interesting. I worked with one Olympic program and we really knocked back their incidence of back injury. And they were the strength deadlifting kind of philosophy. And I got them to sit taller in the boat. But right. you can imagine sitting taller in the boat now as they go up the slides into compression, they're impinging their hips more. So now yeah. they're reporting more hip impingement. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You got to get it from somewhere and posture migrates stress. So a posture change, a change in training technique simply moves the risk from one part of the body to another. But there's a, a little bit of a discussion on flexibility and how even within a sport, it can change based on the anatomy and athleticism and the coach's preference. Yeah. Or, you know, you can't have three elastic, if you have a crew of eight, for example, you can't have three elastic rowers and then five strength athletes. The boat just doesn't hum or in and out of the water at different times and all the rest of it. Huh. So, you know, and then age. Yeah. You know, boy, I'll tell you the mobility in my body has changed, but Mike, you're going to love this in the areas that matter. It's for the better. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I was going through materials because the last thing I want to do is ask you the same questions that either I asked you last time or that the hundred other people who have interviewed you have asked. So one thing that I found as I was going through these old materials of yours you were interviewed and somebody said that nearly half of the people that you'd consulted for had been injured during a personal training session. So I've really got two questions here. Number one, is that really true? And number two, if you could give these trainers that are injuring people in the gym some advice for keeping their clients healthy, what would it be? Well, the answer is yes. That oh was a God. true statement. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. That's awful. Yeah, the things that I hear that these back injured people have been told to do, first of all, in their training, and then in their rehab, I would say far more than half of them have either been caused or exacerbated by, by trainers. So what would I do about it? Now, that, that's a thoughtful follow-up to that. I would say, first of all, know the training goals of the person and make sure they're realistic. Stop training the stay-at-home mom like a bloody Navy SEAL. <laughs> right. They're shortening their athletic careers, just leading them to people like me. So know the training goals and then have good tools in your toolbox to know what tool to pull out to reach that training goals. So if deadlifts are the only tool in your toolbox, I think we have a problem. A loaded carry, a sled push. Simply getting a footballer to grunt and push a car back and forth in a parking lot teaches them foot athleticism, leg drive, you know, 
Yeah. It's, if, if all they do in a football program is squat and deadlift, we have a problem. Yep. So have more tools in the toolbox and know which ones have the highest reward to risk ratio. And Love more it. is not better. Yeah. You're tuning a body, more strength upon more strength. You know, we did an experiment at the university, Mike, a couple of times. The one time I'm going to cite was with volleyball players. And the coach said to one of our graduate students, would you take my volleyball team and I want you to add vertical height. So of course, the strength and conditioning guy is going to use the squat training dominant program to increase vertical jump in a volleyball jumper. I mean, that's what sure. it is. We did the experiment twice, two different groups. We got exactly the same results. About half of the team added a couple of inches on their vertical jump. 10%, 15% made no difference. And 35% lost height off their vertical jump. Now you're wondering, they all did the same program. What the heck happened? Well, as it turned out, if you asked the players a question, and the players know this, it decided which membership and what group they were. Are you naturally quick or are you naturally strong? Now, most kids know that. Yes. So you can imagine now what group was ruined with squat training. Those who are naturally quick, that have that quick explosive neurology, and then you add strength, they jump higher. Mm -hmm. But if they're already strong and you add more strength, you added more stiffness. Yep. You slowed them down. And you know, it's so fun to the great football programs in the US. Some of them still haven't figured this out. The yep. kids coming out of high school have faster sprint times than when they leave the program <laughs> after four years because yep. they were strong kids and they added strength yep. versus it's more difficult to add neurological speed. I get that. Anyway, there's what I would. And of course, this will probably raise the ire of the younger listeners, but the older listeners are going to nod their heads in agreement. And that is to reach the level of mastery stay off Facebook. Yes. Go and work with a master. And the masters don't have time to be on Facebook. They're out <laughs> being the master and learning how to be a better master. Right. So go work with a master, serve your apprenticeship, learn the craft, and you will not learn the craft from the marketers who are marketing on social media. Now I do realize we're using the digital world for this right now, but anyway, there's too many people are mesmerized into thinking that they're really becoming masters listening to these kindergarten discussions. Absolutely. So this next one is really for my I don't own. have many opinions, do I? Mike? Oh, I love it. I love it. I love the stories. I love the opinions. That's why I wanted to have you back on. So this one though, is for my own personal edification more than anything else. So you've written three major books, all of which I've read, all of which are fantastic. And I'm sure to some degree, they're kind of like children, right? Like you love them all, but I've got to ask, do you have a favorite book that you've written? No, they all came from different places and like kids, they're all different mm -hmm. and I don't have a favorite. No, I actually have a, a one, a fourth one, Gift of Injury. I wrote it with Brian Carroll. Are you familiar with that one? Man. Yeah, I do. I have that one. Man, yeah, I thought so there that were was four. The four. I thought there were three. No, well, those low back disorders, disorders that I wrote for clinicians. So that yeah. one was easy for me to write. That was my world. That was yeah. science and educating docs. 
the second one was ultimate back fitness and performance. So I yes. wrote that for coaches yeah. and, you know, athletes and savvy lay people. And then I wrote yep. back mechanic yes. to the lay okay. public. Now that was the hardest book I ever wrote. It was the simplest at when it came out because it was consumable by the lay public. Yes. But for a guy like me to try and distill down what was still scientifically valid and minimal information for the lay public to, to use, but still make it consumable. That was a very difficult book for me to write. And then Gift of Injury with yes, Brian Carroll. Right. That, that is the fourth. Yeah. Written by a, an elite athlete. And I didn't know Brian could write, first of all. And secondly, we talked about it. It was really just going to be Brian's story and how he recovered his you know, after massive back injury, he came back and squatted over 1,100 pounds. Wow. So it was going to be his story of how he did it and the training regimen and all the rest of it. But then, you know, I would go to, he's from Jacksonville, Florida. I'd go down and I'd sit in his kitchen and we'd write, and then we'd go out to the dock and fish. And then we'd come <laughs> back and write a little bit more. And then we'd have dinner. Anyway, we just had such a ball doing it. And then it turned into a strength manual. So it just, it, we couldn't stop. Yeah. And, you know, we've become, I hope he would say the same thing. I was going to say we've become fabulous friends. Well, that's from my perspective anyways. Yes, that's awesome. And, you know, so that, that they were all so different in different processes and different purposes. I love it. I love it. You're right. I mean, I remember because low back disorders was the first one I had and it was so relevant for me because at that time I was working in a chiropractic office doing rehab. And so it totally changed the way that I looked at spines and core training and everything else. So, all right. So I want to be respectful of your time. I realize you have a ton of stuff going on. So we'll do a very quick lightning round and then I will let you go. Okay. <laughs> these are the ones I fear. Oh, no, these are going to be great. Number one, this is, I, I want to hear this. Number one, what's your favorite summer pastime in Canada? Well, oh, I, I'm going to get arrested, but you know, you know, the answer and that is it depends. Yeah. So it depends on the day I hear parents say, oh, you know, I don't like when my adult kids come around and all that kind of, I love when my kids come home Yeah. and then, you know, it's a day down at the dock, just going for a swim, doing a bit of boating, having a beer or a sandwich or whatever it is yeah. in the dock. And they all have fabulous friends. I love their friends to death. So that is those are the favorite days and you know my dog is around and my wife is here yeah. yeah those are just the you can't beat those days man i am like i think that might have endeared me even more to you because that's exactly what i want when my kids are older i want them to come back and hang out and that would be so much fun to have those experiences with them so that's awesome yeah um, there's a couple of their friends who their friends come to our place for their birthdays oh. i know those days and i look forward to them so much and we just have an absolute ball so uh, that's anyway awesome. there you go <laughs> i love it i love it number two and you kind of already answered this but you know what's the best and maybe the worst part about not teaching anymore at least in at least for the university i know you still teach yeah, kind of I, your own I, I don't want to give people a wrong impression, but honestly, Mike, I don't miss the university. The day I, I walked away, I just handed in my keys and the professors came in and really ransacked the lab, so to speak. <laughs> so I didn't want any of it. I took a few personal textbooks that people had signed for me and that kind of thing. But, you know, I had three walls covered with books. I said to the grad students, go in and help yourself. I honestly thought no one would ever be interested in me ever again. And boy, was I wrong. 
Yeah. But yeah, I just gave all that stuff away. And I don't miss the teaching of the students and people. It sounds horrible, but I honestly, I don't. I just, I had to get away from the computer yeah. sitting there and I just, you know, all right, it's great to tell stories and inspire a few young people, but I get to do that now on my terms anyway. Yes. So I love to see patients. The young athlete that I had today is a patient. You know, I, I had to be a pretty hard-nosed parent to her today. She needed to hear a few things if she's going to be successful. She didn't like it. Right. But, you know, how do I teach that and get her to consume the message without her hating me forever and, and that right. kind of thing? So, you know, I still get to, to teach. And then the next person, you just get so much joy because you've changed their life. They're yeah. now out of back pain. So I don't need to teach students at the university anymore. I love it. I love it. Number three, and I'm sure the answer to this is going to be, it depends, but I've got to ask as well. <laughs> Do you, is, is there any one aspect of your career up to this point that you're most proud of? Or one thing that really sticks out to you? Yeah, Mike, this, I hope this doesn't sound awful, but I don't look back and I never, ever think about it. Really? I, I it, No, I just think about what I got to do today, what I have to prepare for tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. I never think about it. I just, I don't think about that stuff. Yeah. I love that. Not, I love that. And not on my radar whatsoever. And just so you know, I, you know, I got asked a little while ago, would I come and give a talk? on choosing a career path. And I said, no, I am the worst example in the world of that. I've had zero career aspirations. I never had a plan. All I ever did was just keep going and try and respond to requests that people made of me. So I'm the world's worst example of planning all of this out. And, you know, I very easily could have been a plumber. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so something tells me you would have been a pretty good plumber though. <laughs> just I'm going to admit something to you. I am. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, man. That's awesome. Okay. Last but not least, I got to know, if you're looking ahead, number four, what's next for Dr. Stuart McGill? What do you got on your radar? What are you excited about? No, nothing. No, nothing. Not a thing. Honestly, I've been everywhere I want to be. I'm going to say this lies, and it's not very politic, but I don't have a bucket list. Yeah. All I have to do, I mean, I don't want to be righteous here, but I just want to keep improving myself and how I treat other people. And I screw up sometimes and that's all I have to do. I have zero things on the bucket list. Some people upset me and I just put them on the bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, man. Okay. Well, we got to stop there because it's not going to get any better than that. <laughs> Stu, you've been amazing to talk to, as always. I just genuinely enjoy catching up with you. Oh, Mike, I always enjoy you. Thank you very much. And thanks for all you do. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's double episode with Dr. Stuart McGill. Like I said up top, it's a replay, but great content deserves to be shared more than once. The guy is an absolute legend. I've learned so much from him, and he has had such a massive impact on our industry. I wanted to make sure that if you hadn't ever seen or heard this episode before, you got a chance to. And even if you had heard both of these episodes, maybe when they were released, hey, that doesn't mean we took everything away from it. The first episode was dropped in 2016. Imagine how much different 
a trainer or coach you are seven years down the line. So even when you read something again, when you listen to something again, maybe you watch a, a video or you know attend a seminar for a second time, you take so much more away because you have evolved as a trainer or coach. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, do me one of two small favors. Number one, if you're not already subscribed to the show, go and do that right now. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon Store, even on YouTube, wherever you consume podcasts. Go there right now, hit the subscribe or follow button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, a family member, loved one, a professional colleague, whether that's a trainer, a coach, or rehab professional, anybody that can get behind and needs to hear Dr. McGill's movement and his words, please share this episode with them so they can become a better version of themselves. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.